Welcome back, Bucket Busters. I'm your host, Tim Johnson, and this is the Busted Bucket Podcast. Locally grown here in Portland, Oregon, the city of roses, city of bridges, Stumptown PDX. This is a show dedicated to Rip City and everyone who loves Portland basketball. Joining me are my co-hosts, Eric, the Encyclopedia Foster, the Bay Area Blazer, Roe Zapanta, and keeping us honest, looking up stats and fact-checking the man in the chair, Blazer Ben. Guys, we have a great show lined up. And I'm excited to introduce a special guest for this episode, Kerry Eggers. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you, Tim. Excuse me. I appreciate you coming on. Um, now, you just released a new book uh, titled Overcoming the Odds. Uh, it's it's how Jerome Kersey blazed a trail from Virginia to the NBA. Now, we want to dive and maybe take a little bit of a deep dive into that. Uh, but, but, but first, we, what we want to do is ask you a few questions uh, pertaining to your history covering sports, um, if, if you don't mind. I don't mind at all. Awesome. Okay, so this first question, it's a doozy, so prepare yourself. <laughs> Who is the greatest of all time, Michael Jordan or LeBron James? Oh, you know... Um, I'm coming around to LeBron. Oh, uh, are you? I, 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 yeah, you know, I... I had LeBron probably number five before the last year or two, but he has moved up. You know, the thing he does that Michael doesn't do is he's so big and strong and powerful. There's nobody better at getting to the basket than him in history, I don't think. Now, he doesn't shoot as well as Michael does did from the outside. I wouldn't say he's as much of a big game player as Michael was. Michael obviously has won more titles. I think I would say Michael is still number uh, number two. Michael is still number two, and LeBron is number three. So who are you guys missing? I already Wilt. know who you're going to say. Wilt still. <laughs> it's got to be still. It's got to so be Will. It's Will. Yeah. Will. Will. He, he didn't like to be called a still. He liked the nickname the Big Yeah, Dipper. that's right. The Big But Dipper. there's nobody, fellas, there's nobody that's been as dominating as Will. Now, I was a young boy when he was playing. I don't remember him much, but... 100 points in a game, averaging 50 in a season, averaging 30 rebounds in a season. And keep in mind, he played in the greatest era for big men ever with Bill Russell, Nate Thurman, Walt mm -hmm. Bellamy, uh, go on and on. And, and, and Will Chamberlain is the greatest player. I'm not sure anybody will ever top him. The greatest perimeter player is Michael Jordan, and LeBron is right there with him. Didn't, you know, pertaining didn't Dwight, to, Dwight to, had the same uh, same response, right? Yeah, he, he really pertaining did. Pertaining to, to Will, Dwight yeah. said the same thing, but he also took it a, a little step further by saying that not only was he the greatest um, basketball player he's ever seen, he's the greatest greatest athlete he's ever seen. Uh, he, he mentioned volleyball. He mentioned a couple track. other sports. He was a seven-foot high jumper, too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, track and field. That's that's insane to me. Um, and this one is actually... So this next question is actually kind of a, a fun one. You're, you're a Portland guy. Is that correct? Or an Oregon guy? Yes. I've, I've lived in Oregon all my life. So what our, my other hosts want to know, I guess including myself, is the best burger joint you've been to in the state. Because there's been quite the debate on our show the last few episodes and we need to know where are you going for a burger 
Well, I, 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 I mean, tell you where I go. It may not be the trendy thing to say, but Burgerville. Yeah. Uh, and I don't even, I don't know if you guys have ever absolutely had Burgerville, but they are. I, I, that's the you know that's the one quote fast food I ever eat. <laughs> I don't eat any fast food except I love their burger, their their quarter pounders, their whatever they call them. I don't even know, but two of those will they'll tuck me in for the rest <laughs> of the day. You you do the oh, yeah. you do the full burger or you just do the basic cheeseburger? I, I'm a big fan of just the basic cheeseburger. Two of those. I am too. That's what I do yeah, too. No ketchup, burger. extra spread. Well, it's their spread. I uh, like I like. Yeah. like I like a cheeseburger, lettuce, pickle, and, and mustard. Solid That's choice. I like, <laughs> I like awesome. it. Awesome. <laughs> so, Carrie, you are quite an accomplished journalist, author. You could literally cover anything you want, work anywhere you want. Why Portland? Why Oregon? Well, I grew up in Corvallis, and, and that's about an hour and a half out of Portland. Uh, my dad was the sports information director at Oregon State. Uh, I grew up around Oregon State Athletics. Uh, and, and, and when I graduated from Oregon State, I had, the year before, I'd, I'd uh, applied for an internship at the two Portland papers. It was the Oregon Journal and the Oregonian. And uh, the Oregonian Sports Center sent me a nice note and said, Kara, I'm aware of you, but we don't have any openings. Uh, you know, keep in touch. And, and the Oregon Journal sports editor, George Passero, said, I got an internship for you. And so I was very fortunate. Um, you know, did I think about at that point going to a, a larger paper? I guess I thought I'm going to start in Portland and see what happens. And there was a, a point in, in about the early 80s where I thought I actually went down and talked to a, the sports or the editor of the Orange County Register down in Southern California. But, you know, I, I by that time, I, I, I had my future wife and, and my, my ex-wife now and uh, future wife then and and we were going to start a family and, and I, you know, Portland was a good place to grow up. And so I'm, I'm glad that I've stayed here. So awesome. So in that industry, is that, is that like a industry where people are always reaching out, trying to headhunt you to bring you onto their team? Uh, no, uh, not for me no. anyway. I mean, uh, I never had anybody, uh, you know, I, I actually, I talked to some people at times uh, about what I ever go somewhere, but I never had another job offered through 45 years. The only time I ever had a, Dwight, a, a, a job offer was from Dwight James in, in 2000 when he became editor of the Portland oh, yeah. Tribune. And he called me and said, we're going to start a new newspaper and you're the first guy I'm calling. Come on over. And and I said, well, you know, we talked for a few minutes. I said, well, Dwight, I'd, I'd love to, but I can't take a pay cut to do that. And he said, no, Carrie, you're not going to have to take a pay cut. So uh, we went over to the Tribune and we were there for eight years and, and I was there for 20. He was there for eight and uh, had a good time over there. Yeah, I remember that. That was like, a, that was a big thing. Like you guys leaving the, the Oregonian and moving over there because it, it almost felt like that's what Blazer coverage was now going to be exclusive to the Portland Tribune at the time. You know, I remember I used to hop well, off the max to grab that paper on Tuesdays and Tuesdays good. and Fridays, I think it was. And Yeah, yeah. very good. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so you, you've been covering sports for a pretty long time, you know, 1975. And we're just kind of curious, like, as time progressed, like, how have you adapted, like, to cover the NBA, like, as it's evolving? Yeah, great question, Rose. The business has changed so much. You guys aren't going to believe this. When I started in 1975, we would type on our typewriter our story from a game. We would call the office. We would dictate word for word. They would type it out. 
and then they would put it in the process and in, in the in what we call the hot type. I mean, you can imagine what a laborious process that was. And then, you know, the evolution of, we had a thing called a Telegram where we actually still typed on a typewriter. We put it through a phone line and it, it would actually roll uh, through the phone line six six minutes to each oh, wow. page. So if you wrote a four page story, it would take wow. 24 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, and then, and then the primitive, uh, uh, the primitive uh, 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 computers we had, it was, First one was called a Radio Shack. Uh, we called it the Trash Eighty, and it was a it was a crummy little thing that we that we had to, that we had had to have tape. But a lot of times the story it wouldn't work. And then obviously now you know you just email your story in. It's so easy. Uh, so the computer age really did change, and then it also changed the way that readers regarded their news. Uh, and it used to be, and, and I don't. You guys are all probably too young, but you go. You look forward to the paper being on your doorstep the next morning. That's the first, either, either the either the news on the on the TV the night before or the paper the next day. Now it's boy, it's an immediacy thing with the social media and and uh, the internet has changed everything. So immediacy has really become important. And I, you know, I'm not so sure I like that. I I, I think. I still enjoy a good quality story. A, a good one of the things I like about the athletic is you still get a lot of those there. So, uh, but it, it's kind of a waning thing, I'm afraid, in our society. Mm -hmm. How do you think social media has changed journalism? Yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, tremendous. Uh, again, uh, it's, it's not quite as much about writing the best story. It's getting it there first and, and getting the getting the scoop on the story, which has always been important, but uh, to me, the, like I said, the most important thing is is doing it right, getting your sources, making sure you have your sources correct, and and you know writing an entertaining and and factual story. Now, you you brought up sources. How do you feel about all these stories that say an anonymous source or reliable source? You know, could you get away with that well, back so, in the day? Uh, you know, five yeah, you years ago. You know, Eric, it's not preferable, but I understand, and I've used, I use sources because you have to protect your sources, and you have to trust your sources, and they have to be able to trust you. So, as long as you're not making it up, if you actually do have a source that you have faith that has a, you know has good inside information, and, and they say, "Look, you, you can't identify me," then yes, I will use it. Um, so talking about your your. I guess, beginnings as a journalist, is there someone that you looked up to or maybe modeled um, how you covered uh, sports after, or maybe even later on in your career or, or currently for that matter? Well, two guys uh, in particular that you guys don't know the names, uh, Ken Wheeler, who worked for the Oregon Journal, which is the paper I worked for the first seven years of my career, and a guy named Leo Davis, who's in the Oregon Sports Hall of Fame, at the Oregonian, both of them were very clever. Uh, I loved their word. They were wordsmiths. They, 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 you know, they drew you into a story with a good lead. Uh, they had their facts straight. Both of those guys were great. And then through my career, there's a lot of, of national writers that I've, I've admired. The one that comes to mind uh, to, right now is Scott Osler, uh, who uh, you know now works in the Bay Area. He worked in the, for the Los Angeles Times for a long time. I really admire Scott. He's funny. He's uh, he's witty. He's he's a really good writer. Um, you know, uh, Rick Riley, who worked at Sports Illustrated, very clever writer. So yeah, there's a lot of and you know, you ask about influences. 
you know, you, you, you pick up things as you go. If you don't, you're not being smart about it. I, you know, I don't know. I didn't, I probably never invented anything in the, in the, in the field of writing, but I think that I was able to borrow from people and put together a pretty good craft. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I know we have uh, quite a few younger listeners. Um, if you had to give them any kind of advice as far as, you know, if they were looking into get, get into this, this field of journalism, is there anything maybe call it three takeaways, uh, that they should focus on? Read, read a lot, um, read different stuff. Don't just, if you're a sports guy, don't just read sports. Two years uh, during when I was at, at the um, at Oregon State, my last two years, I was managing editor of the, of the school paper as a junior, <clears throat> excuse me, and, and uh, an editor as a senior. And I wrote no sport, very little sports. And I wrote a lot of other things. And I think that really opened up my eyes to uh, a lot of important things that, you know, and, 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 and you know, just different things that were not connected with sports help you become a better writer. So I, I say read and read a lot of stuff. And then re when you read things, notice what you like about what the, how that writer is presenting the story and, and borrow from that and, and work at it. And the other thing is don't think that sports writing is just opinion. That's the easiest part of it. The hardest part of it is is getting a story put together where you have quotes from the people involved, where you have facts, where you have numbers, you have ages, you have heights and weights and all that kind of stuff. So many stories do not have all the things. Write your story like you, as a reader, you would want it to be written. Does it leave any questions? If it did, then you're not doing your job. Excellent advice. So Carrie, you had talked about influence and learning from the guys ahead of you. You know, when I think of Portland writers and especially Blazer-centric writers, guys who have covered the team for long periods of time, you know, you come to mind. Um, now Jason Quick comes to mind. Dwight James comes to mind. But there's a guy that doesn't get talked about a lot, and that's Wayne Thompson. Um, how did Wayne? Yeah, how did how did Wayne influence you? You worked with him for a long time. Well, I, I actually didn't ever work directly with Wayne. Wayne was at the Oregonian when I was there, but he had moved on to, to uh, gosh, he, he was one of the editors, not in the sports department. But Wayne became a good friend of mine after he'd retired. And you know, he worked for the Blazers for many right. years. And I him in the press room. Wayne was the very first beat writer for the Oregonian for the Blazers. Yep. And a great guy, a clever guy, a very smart guy. And, and I, I, I really, really enjoyed getting to know him in his later years. Now, when he was, I remember reading his editorial pieces in that Rip City magazine that they yeah. used to do when I was a kid. And it always, and, and, and then from there kind of graduated, I went to Irvington Elementary and I, I walked into the library and I found this book one time and it was Blazer Profiles. Can you, does that sound familiar to you at all? That's the first book that I've ever, that I wrote in 1990. And that one wasn't my idea. They had gotten to the NBA finals, Eric. And, and uh, you know, let's put a quick book out on, on the Blazers. So it was a, a, a mini profile on each of the 12 players and uh, all, all three of the coaches. And uh, it's kind of a small, thin book, but it's the first one I ever did. I own that one as well. And I'm going to tell you a story about that just because it's, it's amazing. For me, uh, I didn't know a lot at the time that came out. I was about eight years old. So I went to the library and I'm reading it. And there's a picture in there of this guy with his his 
double O over his eyes. And in that profile, you mentioned that his birthday was April Fool's Day, which is my birthday. And for, I will never forget the feeling I got sitting in there knowing that I shared a birthday with Kevin Duckworth, you know, the late, <laughs> great Kevin yeah. Duckworth. And the way that's yeah. impacted me, and I tell that story to this day. So even though that was a thin little book, I mean, it had a huge, thick impact on probably a lot of guys' lives. You know, Duck was such a fun guy and such a big teddy bear and always felt that he, you know, he, he considered himself an underdog, a guy from Eastern Illinois and, and uh, had been an all-star twice. So he is, you know, the most, you know, one of the most accomplished centers in, in Blazer history. And it's just a shame that we lost him so early. I think we all can agree on that. Um, let's get a couple more journalism questions in here. Um, if there, I guess, is there one player or one team um, that you have specifically loved covering throughout your career? You don't have to say the Trailblazers. <laughs> well, my, my favorite thing to cover, uh, Tim, is, is uh, college football. And since I started at the Tribune in 2001, that was Oregon State, and uh, which was my alma mater, and I had a lot of you know, people that I knew down there, uh, it was my hometown. And so I, I have to say, I probably enjoyed, uh, and, and Mike Riley, who I grew up with, was their coach for many years. So, um, you know, th that was, that's probably number one. Number two would be the Blazers. And, and, and certainly those, you know, I actually only covered the Blazers three years for the uh, Oregonian. It happened to be 89 through 92, the, the, you know, when they were, you know, made it to the finals twice. And in that middle year, you guys are too young probably to remember, but they should have won it that, that year. That was the year. That was, mm -hmm. Yeah, with, with Dan, when they brought in Danny Ainge and Cliff Robinson was their sixth man. And mm -hmm. uh, they lost to the Lakers in the in the uh, conference finals. But the, the, that group was a special group. They still remain friends. I just talked to Clyde Drexler yesterday. And and uh, it, 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 that was a great part of my life and my career. Now, you've you brought up finals a couple of times now. Is there one that leaves a, a bigger impression than other finals on you that you've covered? Oh, I, I, I covered a lot that weren't uh, just the Blazers. Uh, you know, I covered that, was it 98, the, the Utah uh, uh, Chicago series? Well, it was whatever was the last Jordan one where he made that little oh, move yeah. on Brad Russell and, and mm -hmm. You know, you, you, you'll never forget that that game. And that was a game, I believe, when he was ill, too. He was sick and didn't know if he could play. So, you know, I covered all of Jordan's, uh, uh, you know, championship teams. And the, actually, the, the Chicago-Phoenix uh, series with Charles Barkley was a fun one to cover, too. Uh, but, uh, you know, the two ones that Portland made, the first one, they were, it was a surprise. Uh, they, I didn't think they were going to get to the finals that night, 1990 season. They, but they did, added Buck Williams. Cliff Robinson was a rookie. Uh, and everything seemed to work together for him. And then the, the next time in 92, everybody expected them to be there. They got there. And, and then they lost to the Bulls. So, uh, you know, the first time they'd lost to the Pistons, the Bad Boys, and then the second time to the Bulls. Mm-hmm. So I have a question regarding that. Well, we had Dwight on and he mentioned this. He said, you know, I asked him like, is it a, did the Blazers lose to better teams in 90 and 92? And his answer was yes. But he agreed with you and he said almost identically to what you just said, that that 91 team was the team that if they would have made the finals, that was a better team than Chicago. And they more, more than likely would have walked away with the NBA championship had they been able to get past the Lakers. 
I think so. Um, yeah, uh, were they better than the Pistons? You know, the Pistons were uh, a veteran team. They were seasoned. They'd won it the year before. They knew how to win. They had Isaiah Thomas and and Rodman and 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 Lambeer and and uh, it was it was a good team. Now I think the Blazers were just as talented as they were, but I don't think they were as used to playing in a big time situation. In '92, the Blazers were pretty darn talented, and they beat the they split with the Bulls in the regular season. Um, you know, so I, I think they were only you know you got Michael Jordan out playing Clyde in that series, and that probably was the difference. Clyde was fantastic that year. Uh, he, he forced them to put him on the dream team. He was the last addition to that dream yeah. team, if you remember. Yep. Yeah, and, and he was a runner up for uh, MVP that year. But Jordan had 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 the best of them in the finals, and, and that was the difference. But you do think '91 was the year? That was the year, you know. And, and they won 63 games. Yep. I mean, that's a lot of wins. And and I think they had winning streaks. They were 18 and one at one time, and then they, I think they finished the regular season by winning 10 in a row. So, yeah, they closed out that. Uh, there was no re there was no reason for them not to win. And but they they didn't. They lost the first game at home to the Lakers in the playoffs and never really recovered. Yeah, that's the that game one is where Vladi was given the Euro flop to Duckworth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he got into Duck's head in that series for sure. Yeah. So, Kerry, I want to steer this in a slightly different direction. We just talked about finals. Um, I want to talk about NBA All Star games. Now, the All Star game, you've covered those as well. Um, they've seemed to have evolved maybe in the wrong direction over the years. Um, some people would say, I, I kind of want to get your take. Um, do, do you like the NBA all-star game? Um, if you don't, do you foresee a chance or, or maybe a direction they could take where they could improve? Well, First of all, the reason I, I don't like them is because it's just a big show. There's no defense played. It's 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 almost a badge of honor not to play defense. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's a it's a three point contest and a dunk contest, right? And so I, I would prefer a competitive game. Now, to be fair, if it's close towards the end of a game, then they play hard and they do try to win. Right. Uh, but um, but I, I, you know, I, I, it's just to me that the first three quarter, the first 42 minutes of, of an all-star game are generally pretty boring. I don't yeah. care to see that. Uh, I, I like to see strategy and, and guys, gritty players. And, mm -hmm. and you know, that's, that's the kind of stuff that I personally appreciate as far as suggestions on what they could improve. You know, I, I don't like the gimmicky stuff. I, I just, I like the East the Western conference against the East. Mm -hmm. I, I don't like the, the drafting players uh, thing. I, I know they're trying to, like, as you say, you know, improve the product, but uh, did, did you see, I think, did you, I'm sorry. Did you ahead. see the last, last year's where I'm, I'm sure I watched it, but it's not memorable to me. Uh, I think they changed it to where after every quarter, uh, there was a, a purse to be won uh, for yeah. a specific charity uh, designated to each team. Uh, I was curious if if that maybe uh, maybe made you think it, it improved the game a little bit. Maybe it made them play a little tougher on defense. Although I didn't see it personally. Yeah, I, I don't think so. But you know, it's it's nice that charity uh, benefits from it. But uh, you know, in the end, I don't think it improved the product. You know, mm -hmm. I I was wondering since you've covered like so many All Star games, was there one in particular that stood out to you? 
There was one in, uh, I think it was in Orlando, uh, where uh, Carl Malone uh, missed a shot that would have won the game. And, uh, and, and, and I remember him talking about it afterwards. And there was another one where Magic Johnson played after not having played through the season after he contracted HIV. Uh, HIV. And uh, he, uh, he won the MVP, he made a bunch of shots at the end of the game. And that was the game where Clyde was headed to being the MVP. Stole it from Clyde. Him. And, and he did. He stole it from Clyde at the end of the game. He, you know, I can understand why Magic got it, but uh, uh, really Clyde was the, the guy who threw that game was the best player. Mm-hmm. So one more question about the All-Star game, and I, I promise we're done. <laughs> did you hear, um, it was maybe a couple years ago, um, Bill Simmons talking about adding a midseason tournament instead of the All-Star game? Yeah, I think they, they've posed, they posed that idea several times, and uh, I think it's terrible. Look, our, the season is good. It's it's too long. Mm-hmm. I'd like to see it be about 72 games instead of 82, but you know they're never going to do that because the owners want the money, yep. and I understand that's a business. But, no, I don't like midseason tournaments. You know, uh, uh, the commissioner, Adam Silver, has talked about that, and I think they've considered it pretty seriously, but mm-hmm. I, I, I wouldn't be in favor of that. Another week of the NFL season means another shot to win big at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. New customers can bet just $1 on any NFL game and win $100 in free bets if either team scores a point. The last 0-0 tie in the NFL was in 1943, so I'd say this is a no-brainer. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code TBPN. Throw down $1 on any NFL game and win $100 in free bets if either team scores a point. That's promo code TBPN this week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit and $1 wager required. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. That's fair enough. Um... Let's take another detour. So there was a recent story that broke uh, implicating 18 previous NBA players uh, in an insurance fraud scandal. I'm sure you heard of it. Three of them being ex-Blazers, one of them being a current assistant coach for the Blazers. Now, what we're wondering is, were you surprised to hear the names of Ruben Patterson, Darius Miles, and Sebastian Telfair? Uh, I'm never surprised at those three names being associated with some sort of trouble. Mm-hmm. So what we're kind of hoping to do is talk a little bit about the jailblazers here, uh, which you wrote a book about this. Um, it is actually titled jailblazers, how the Portland trailblazers became the bad boys of basketball. Um, do you believe, in your experience, uh, that the Jailblazer era uh, was the most tumultuous time to cover the NBA here in Portland? Um, did you see any upsides to this team besides the raw talent that was on the team? Uh, or was it always just kind of doom and gloom around here? No, I wasn't doom and gloom. Uh, it was the most tumultuous t- period in Blazer history. but. Uh, think about some of the players on the, and I, I basically consider that from about 95 to 2005. Uh, there was people like Chris Dudley and 
Brian Grant and Steve Kerr and, uh, and, and Steve Smith and even Scotty Pippen. I, I had a great deal of respect for Scotty. And I mean, I could go Jermaine O'Neal, like Kenny Anderson, uh, Derek Anderson, all those people are, are good people. And, and, you know, we're not trouble guys. So uh, they got dragged down by the others, the, the guys that had trouble either with the law or with, uh, you know, making uh, practice or, uh, you know, uh, technical fouls, mm-hmm. uh, that sort of thing. And, and uh, you know, but again, yeah, we'll never see, uh, Tim, a, a, a group of, a, a, an era of players like we saw then, because a city won't allow it, the fans won't allow it. I don't think ownership or the league would allow it these days. Would you consider it a failed experiment by Bob Witsit? Uh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. He didn't even get him to the NBA Finals. And he, he had the, the greatest wherewithal of any general manager in the league. I mean, he set an all-time record, Eric, for, uh, you know, salary uh, payroll and, and didn't even get him to the Finals. So, you know, his experiment with, you know, just let's throw his, you know, it was like he was a fantasy team owner. He, he threw a lot of good talent in and said uh, to the coaches, you guys handle it. And to be fair, the coaches all were glad to have that talent, even though there was some issues with the players that they had to deal with. And in the end, uh, it didn't behoove them. Now, you've mentioned it in your book a few times, but do you think um, that experiment failed uh, maybe partly due to the fact that ownership and management didn't actually reside in the city not ownership i think an owner can be outside the city but the general manager has to be in the city he has to have a pulse on what's going on mm-hmm. uh and and bob quits it during his time always lived in seattle when we asked him about it he said my home is my cell phone uh and and you know okay but he didn't know what was going on uh, a lot of the time i don't know that he cared anyway but uh, you know, if you ask any of the players, they felt that the general manager should live there, and I, I agree with them. Mm-hmm. You know, with your with your book, um, the Jailblazers, you talked to a lot of people. You talked to players, coaches, uh, referees. Was there anyone that you talked to in particular that really stood out? Um, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of people that I really. Uh, uh, really enjoyed talking to and were great sources. I mean, uh, Bobby Medina, who was the strength and conditioning coach, um, was, was really a good source. Uh, uh, Jay Jensen, who was the uh, trainer, um, all the assistant coaches were really, really good to talk to. Um, uh, Dan, uh, oh gosh, the guy, he was, he, I'm drawing a blank on his last name. He was an assistant with, with Maurice Cheeks was a, in particular, very, very good. Um, and, and a lot of the players uh, were, were terrific uh, sources. And, um, you know, I, I would have loved to have had a chance to talk to J.R. Ryder and Rasheed Wallace and Bonzi Wells and, and those guys, but they chose not to, to talk. But uh, we got plenty of stories about them from other people. And uh, I think I was able to be pretty comprehensive with it. Was there ever any reason why specifically Rasheed Wallace wouldn't want to talk to you? By the way, that's Dan Panaggio. I'm sorry, Dan, that I forgot your name. You remembered it. Uh, was there a reason that he that he didn't talk to me? I mean, you'd have to ask him. But um, I had his phone number, and I left several messages, and he never returned a call. But, you know, he didn't talk to very many people, Eric, during that time. Well, the reason that I asked is that uh, when he started that podcast with Bonzi Wells before he ended up over at Memphis with Penny, 
you know, and, and Bonzi got that job. They were doing a podcast and on one of their very first episodes, they referenced the towel throwing incident in 2001 where he throws the towel into Bonus's face. And right. he was apologetic about that. You know, he apologized on the podcast saying that, you know, Sabonis's family was there. He shouldn't have done that. It was immature. And I felt like it was surprising considering he didn't want to participate in the book, which could have given him an opportunity to kind of clear the air, so to speak, or just give him, give people his side of the story. But apparently he just wasn't very willing. I wish you'd have been his agent at the time, <laughs> Eric. You'd have talked him into it. <laughs> I would have. Absolutely. All right, Carrie. Now for the meat and potatoes. We want to talk about Jerome Kersey. We want to talk about your new book, Overcoming the Odds. I guess what we want to start off with is um, talking a little bit about what you remember about Jerome Kersey's character and what he meant to this team. Because to us, he seemed like he was the glue guy for the team. I would say he and Buck Williams were similar in that, Tim. And uh, it, Neither of them had plays run for them offensively. Sometimes players, no no pun intended, take offense at that. Uh, they uh, didn't, they, they filled their roles admirably. Uh, Jerome was, and I, I'm saying this respectfully, was a garbage man. He did a little bit of everything for me. He, 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 he was such a great hustler and his teammates really respected him for that. Um, you know, he was the greatest guy at running down the other team that was on a fast break and knocking the swatting the ball out just they were trying to dunk it or or stuff and he did that before lebron james used uh, did it so um he was an excellent rebounder uh, he was a great finisher an excellent dunker and and as you talked about character yeah i mean he, he's the kind of guy that was really for the team not so much for himself but for the team in fact i think he subjugated him you know, his stats at times uh, in order to help the team. So the only guy in that group that did not make the all-star game, but uh, in my mind, he, he was that kind of a player. Now, you mentioned also Buck Williams. I know we're, we're already, you know, steering off Jerome Kersey. Uh, did you have a lot of conversation with Buck? Do you, have you, have you spoke to him recently ever, or do you know what he's up to? Yeah, Buck's in, uh, in Maryland and, uh, you know, he has several business ventures. He coached a couple of years with the Blazers. Uh, I yeah, I talked to him for both uh, the Kersey book and uh, and for the uh, for the Jailblazer book. And uh, he he's doing really well. He's a great guy. And in fact, I used him right at the end of the book where he said uh, that that he thinks that Jerome's number should be retired by the Blazers. And I I, I believe that too. And I'd like to see them. Hang number 25 from the Raptors. Uh, he deserves yeah, it. Absolutely. I think we can all agree on that. Yeah. One. Cross the board on that one. Mm -hmm. So, Kerry, we knew going in, well, at least I did, knowing that considering the circumstances around Jerome's passing, that it was going to be a, a tough read, you know. But you decided right from the get go to go right for the fields with Terry Porter. Uh, pinning the forward that was tough and that was a uh, that was heartfelt and he did a really Terry Porter did a great job on that by the way so I just wanted yeah. to give him you know a, a round of applause for making it as heartfelt as it was but what kind of 
what kind of reaction did he have when you asked him? Yeah, he said he'd be, he'd be glad to do it. We, I just went over to his house one day and we sat down and we talked for gosh, hour, hour and a half. And, and uh, I, I basically interviewed him, you know, when, when these things are written, the writer does the writing, but on Terry's behalf, he went through a fine tooth and comb and made a bunch of changes and every change that he made improved the product. And I agree with you. He did a beautiful yeah, job. Yeah, it was on. great. Um, what do you think Jerome's impact was on that, on those, those teams? You know, he played all the way till 95 in Portland. So he was, he was here for an entire decade. He played with a lot of different guys. Um, the guys that you interviewed and had quotes from in that book, they all were very similar in the fact that they said that he was, just, he was a selfless teammate. He was a great teammate. Um, was there anybody in particular that stood out that had took it a step further and talked about, Jerome's impact on them? I think probably Terry would be the one. Um, he was the one that was closest to him. But, you know, the guys that talked about the impact that he had on him were probably the Longwood guys, mm -hmm. where he played mm -hmm. college ball. And he became he became their leader immediately as a freshman. And and they still remember him today as a close friend. He kept a friendship, friendship with that group all the way till his death. And we get together with them regularly. They, he'd fly some of them out. Mitch Walker, Kevin Brandon, in particular, were close friends of his. And, uh, and Kevin didn't play with him, but was a classmate at, at Longwood. And Kevin is the guy that uh, that established a scholarship in, in Jerome's name at Longwood, and, and that's, it was a neat thing. But those guys were in particular, in particular, talking about how he never changed. He was always the same guy. And, and a very, very popular member of their group. And do you think that maybe had something to do with the upbringing that he got from his grandparents? No question. You know, his his, mother, his grandmother in particular was the biggest influence in his life. Uh, his mother had him when she was 17. I wasn't, didn't feel like she was, you know, mature enough to raise him. Uh, Grandma Kersey had seven children of her own. Jerome basically became, uh, her name was May and, and her husband was Herman. Uh, they, he became their eighth child and he always called her grandma and called him grandpa and uh, she was a huge influence on his life a wonderful woman who just died a few months ago at age 92. And Carrie you know with your book Overcoming the Odds um, we're kind of wondering was there like a conversation or a specific like inspiration that you had um, like why you chose Jerome Kersey? Yes. Oh, to write the book? Uh, well, what happened was um, I had just retired from the newspaper. I was actually putting together a collection of my stories that I was going to put into a book. I, I went through every story I'd ever written for 45 years. It took me three wow. months. And I had that, you know, I had about 200 stories set out, and I'm going to I'm gonna eventually do that. But then I got an email from uh, a man named Ron Brown who went to school at Longwood, and he told me that a book had been started by the sports information director at Longwood and, and asked if I'd be interested in completing it. And so I said, well, uh, send me out the, uh, you know, what, what he's written. It was four chapters. It wasn't what I was interested in doing, but I said, well, I'd be interested in doing my own book if you have a publisher and money for an advance. And they said, yes. And so that's how it came about. And the reason I decided to do it, at first I thought, no, I, I'm not sure that that would be a, a book that it would sell. And then I thought, you know what? 
This guy meant so much to this community. He lived here from 1984 until his death in 2015. He was a beloved citizen in the community, uh, a, you know, a, a powerful personality. And I think people wanted would want to read about it. And that's why I decided to can do you, it. Can you tell us some of the people that you might have talked to for this book? Well, I mean, I talked to all of his all of his teammates. You know, there's 25 teammates, uh, you know, including Nate McMillan, who played with him wow. in Seattle. Steve Kerr played a year in, in, in Portland with him. And, and I talked to Charles Barkley, who became a great friend of his. John Stockton came up the same year. John called me back. We had a great talk about how they both played in the Portsmouth Invitational when nobody knew who either of them were. Uh, they both played, you know, Jerome played 17 years. I think Stockton played 21. So uh, they were both underdogs, you know, guys like that, uh, you know, of course, Clyde and Buck and Terry and, and all of the players and, and, and his coaches. I talked to all four of his head coaches at, uh, in, with the Blazers. And, and I didn't get a chance to talk to Greg Popovich. He's one of the guys I would have liked to. That was the coach of the 99 San Antonio team in which Jerome finally got that uh, championship ring that he, he was really hoping to get. You mentioned you talked to, to Clyde. How receptive was Clyde to talking about his time in Portland? Oh, good. Very good. You know, I, I did a book with Clyde. We've been close close for a long time and he's he's been great to me and i i know that whenever i call him he'll he'll respond is he still the rockets uh play-by-play -play? you know I, I i that's a good question i don't know if he's working this year he, he worked some games last year i know he was he was cutting he never did travel with them he just did home games and i'm not sure if he's working uh, this year on it all right carrie you're a friend of clyde's you got to do something for the Portland fans. You got to tell him because he's going to be a lock for the 75th anniversary team. You know Clyde's going to be on it. Can he please ditch that Houston jacket? <laughs> Can you just tell him? He got the 50th anniversary one in the Houston jacket. Can he? When he walks out and they call his name and they bring him on stage at that All Star game, can he please be wearing a Blazers jacket? Oh, okay. Did he have a Houston one on? I forgot oh, man, it stabbed that. me right in the heart. I've never forgiven him. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll talk to him. About uh, that. Thank you, Carrie. I'm sure thank that it's you. on your behalf. <laughs> yeah. And you know, um, Rip, Rip City thinks yeah. you, Eric. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I had to be the guy. I'll lay on my sword. Hey, Carrie, before Rogue that gets will in. Be in 22. That'll be in 22, right? That's next year. Yes. Yeah, that's this yes. All-Star game coming up. Yeah. Yep. No, I, I covered the game in 97 in Cleveland where I think 48 of the top 50 were all there. I think Wilt and there was one other player that, well, you know who the other one was, the Pete Maravich, yep. that weren't there. It's pistol. Yeah. Yeah. So as we move back to the book, it, it's not talked about a lot, but there has been a... It's been well known that Cliff and Jerome were highly competitive with each other. How does, how do you approach that with both of those guys past now, and 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 revisit that and talk about some of the things that they did in practice? You know, there's a, there's been some rumblings of maybe a couple fist fights and, you know, some choice words between those guys just being competitive. Cliff wanting his spot. What did that look like back in the early '90s? You know, I asked players about that specifically, and they said that while there was a competitive fire, that there was no ill feelings between them, and that I don't believe there was any ever any fistfights. There was a lot of physical play and practice, and, and Buck Williams told me that 
Jerome's feeling about that was that's my spot and he's not going to beat me out. And he didn't. No, he never did. He didn't. You know, well, he, he actually did at, at the end in about 93 or four. But by that time, Jerome was starting the downside of his career. But through that time in the early 90s, Cliff thought he should be starting right from the first year. <laughs> and Jerome held that job for a long time. Yeah, Kersey only started six games in '93-'94, so. Um, yeah, that was when that was when he moved yeah. to the bench. Yeah. You know, with with your how hard was oh, go, oh, no? Go ahead, Eric. Go ahead. How hard was that? Did you did you get a chance to talk about? Uh, you know, he was really demoted by Rick, who was his longtime coach, moved him to the bench. Um, they brought in Harvey Grant. What what were Jerome's feelings on being such an integral part of a successful team, and then? making that transition over to the to the bench at the time he did not take it well at all uh he he was he had hard feelings towards towards rick in fact i did a story where in about i think he signed with uh i can't remember who he wound up signing with after he left was it toronto i can't remember he got he got well then okay that was with rick but in his last year in portland i think was when i did a story with him and he he, you know, and Rick was gone. I think was I believe PJ, PJ was, was there. first year. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, so he had hard feelings, but he got over him quickly. And in fact, Rick signed him that next year at Golden State, and he signed him because he wanted to him that he was thought he was going to be a role model for his young guys. And he and John Wessel both told me a story about how I think it was a uh, 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 Danielle Marshall. Uh, didn't want to even practice against him because he, he was afraid to get beat up by Jerome. <laughs> uh, Jerome showed those guys how hard he had to practice to be a good player. Well, that Golden State team also had Ronnie Cycli. I mean, he was pretty, pretty beastly out there too. Yeah, I, I don't think any of those guys played with the fire that Jerome did. Jerome actually wound up starting a lot of those games like that year, I believe, Ben. Didn't he? Uh, yeah, he, he probably he started a... 60, uh, 68 of those games. Yeah, and he he was again on the downside of his about career 50, by that 58 time. in Golden State, but the year before in Portland, he had started zero, but he had played in '73. Yeah. So you know, but the beauty of that Ben was that playoff series, that last playoff series that he played against Phoenix. He was the best Portland player on the team, so and that's how he went out. So his last playoff series against the Phoenix Suns in '95, before he went over to Golden State, he went out with a bang. Jerome was one of those rare players, Eric, who played better in the in the postseason than did in the regular season, and his stats will bear that out. Uh, and he had a lot of really, really big games for the Blazers, especially in that '92 uh, postseason. Um, Kerry, kind kind of getting back to your book, and um, I was wondering, you know, when when writers sometimes, you know, investigate a story, or they start to write a book they often have an opinion of the character or the person that they're covering. I was wondering, what did what were your thoughts of Jerome Kersey when you started to when you ended with the book after, you know, interviewing all the players, after interviewing all the coaches? Um, did that evolve over time? No, because I, I knew Jerome fairly well. And, I, you know, my opinion of him will not change because of what other people said. But... I was a little bit surprised, or, or maybe a little, my, my opinion was fortified by the just kind of unanimous 
how popular he was. And, you know, I talked to some guys off the record about him on some stuff that maybe I didn't use, but by and large, you know, 98% of the stuff was positive about Jerome and you don't see that all the time. I mean, he, he really was a beloved guy by his teammates and even by players he went up against. Another guy I would have loved to have talked to was Xavier McDaniel. That was probably the guy that he had the biggest rivalry with. Uh, McDaniel was a really good small forward for, for Seattle and then Phoenix during his career. And boy, did they have some battles, but uh, I didn't get a chance to talk to the X-Man. Talk about the the I five rivalry. That was a big thing in the in the nineties. There was the up and coming Seattle SuperSonics. Rest in peace. Hopefully they can get another team back. But those Blazer teams, especially in that ninety one season, we there was that triple overtime game where where Terry Porter hits that three after the buzzer, but they count it. They go to triple overtime. They win up in Seattle. What was what was that like? Because Jerome ended up playing up in Seattle, and so there was that I five connection beyond just you know Portland Seattle the I five corridor. But there was a there's definitely a mix. Nate McMillan, you know, there's the Portland connection there. Detlef Shrimp, Hersey Hawkins was just recently a player development coach. What did that look like back then? Yeah, it was a, it was a good rivalry. Seattle was one of four or five teams the Blazers had a real rival with. Phoenix was another team with. KJ and Tom Chambers and Marley and that group, but uh, Seattle had, like you mentioned, some of the names of the guys. Now, Seattle got better when they had Gary Payton and Sean Kemp. That's when they really hit the top under George Carl in 76, 77, or sorry, 96, 97. But in the early 90s, it was an excellent rivalry. They played them in the playoffs one year, won the first two games. This was a first round series, lost the next two, and then had to win the fifth and deciding game to get move on um i remember that did you write that and story I, the backs against the wall was that you oh i, I probably did i don't <laughs> i don't i covered that story. i have that i i should have dug it out it's in my i have the the paper copy but it's on the, it's not on the sports page backs against the wall is the front page of the oregonian yeah yeah no it was front page news when the blazers were playing the playoffs they moved us out there a lot of the time that's awesome so Carrie, we're kind of winding down here and I want to make sure you're able to say everything you want to say about your book that was just released to our audience. So um, now I was kind of thinking maybe you can give a brief synopsis of the book um, and maybe just encourage our, our listeners uh, into what they may be picking up. Uh, let, them, let them know a little bit about the book. Well, some people tell me, Tim, it's a motivational book. I didn't mean it that necessarily in that way but here's a guy who uh you know grew up in an underprivileged situation in a small town uh, never really had aspirations even playing college ball uh, as a senior grew a little bit had a good senior year didn't have any college offers other, really under, other than Longwood which, which would had transitioned from uh, NCAA Division three to Division two, still a small school. He had a great career there, but still was basically not known by NBA scouts. Uh, got on the radar with a good performance at the Portsmouth Invitational. Wound up being a second round pick from the Blazers. Not a, not even. I think it was a 46th pick in the uh, in the '84 draft. And he, when he came to Portland, he impressed uh, Jack Ramsey, the coach. But Jack told him, he says, you know, you're a good 
good young player, but I'd like to send you to Europe for a year or two of seasoning, and then we'll bring you back. And Jerome went back and talked to his college coach. And he says, look, you're good enough to play. Show him that. And he did. He, and, and he made the team. It was a surprise. Uh, you know, played quite a bit as a rookie. Played a lot more as a, as a second-year player. By the third year, he was a starter and became a 17-year NBA player. Nobody who was drafted that low has ever played that, that as many games as he has, except one guy. And uh, let's see, that's the Kyle Corver is the only guy that was drafted lower than him that played that many years. So anyway, uh, you know, I think it's a, it's it, overcoming the odds. Uh, his, the odds were way against him. And I think you'll enjoy the book if you, if you buy it. Uh, it's, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, detail about some of his, his, his great games and some of the things that sort of haunted him through his life too. So uh, I think it's a pretty honest book and uh, you can order it on kerryeggers.com uh, on my website. We also are creating a, a, a dedicated website to Jerome, jeromecursey.net that'll be ready shortly. You can order it on that. So kerryeggers.com or jeromecursey.net and we'll send you off a book. Awesome. Uh, I, are there any plans to make it um, an audiobook? Yes. Yes, there are. And I, I don't know what the particulars are, but yes, there are. I asked our publisher that. Okay, fantastic. That's awesome. Go ahead, Ben. Now, I, I know we just talked about the Kersey book. Are, are there any plans to have any other books in the near future? Yeah, as I said, I'm going to do a collection of, uh, you know, stories that I've written throughout the years that I think are of most interest. And I, I, I really am looking, I'm, I'm doing that as much for myself as for, for anybody. I, I think it'll be fun. I'll put a, a, a preface on how the story came about and then a, a postscript on, you know, how I got to interview Muhammad Ali or, 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 or you know, a Jordan or, or you know, and, and some of the stories are just great stories. For instance, Craig Hanneman, a former NFL player, uh, and, and he played his college ball at Oregon State, has climbed all seven, the summits of all seven mountains, uh, in the top mountain in each of the seven continents. He's the first NFL guy to do that. He has ALS now, and the last three mountains that he climbed were after he was diagnosed. Oh, wow. wow. That is a big story. That is an, he's an amazing guy. That's just an example of the stories that I'm going to put in there. And I'll tell you what, he's worth the book. He doesn't want me to do a book on him, but he, he is an incredible story. Gary, it sounds like we need to have you back on the pod to share some of these stories with us. I mean, that's a great <laughs> teaser if I've ever heard one. <laughs> well, you might be able to talk sounds to me great. about that, fellas. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Well, gentlemen, if you don't have any other questions, Carrie, I want to thank you so much for being on the show um again the the new book um jerome kersey overcoming the odds how jerome kersey blazed a trail from virginia to the nba is out now um go snag it up carrie thank you so much thank you guys have a good evening you do Thanks, the same Carrie. shout out to my co-host the encyclopedia foster the bay area blazer rosa panta the man in the chair blazer ben the Basketball Podcast Network, DraftKings, and especially you, our listeners, Twitter followers, and bucket busters. You make it so easy to keep stepping up to this mic. Keep reaching out to us on Twitter, at Busted Bucket, with your comments and questions. And remember to check out our website, BustedBucketPod.com. And don't forget to rate, follow, and subscribe if you're digging what we're saying. 
Be good to each other, Rip City. We'll catch you next time on the Busted Bucket Podcast. Thanks for listening.